0: Equity is brought to you by ExtraCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that. Let's start the show. Hello oh, and welcome back to Equity, Techrunchs venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today, as always, by the two finest humans on planet Earth. I have Natasha Moscarenis. Natasha, please tell me that all things are good with you.
1: All things are good with me, but more importantly, Alex, how are you? We never ask how you are on the show.
0: It's true. Usually I'm terrible, but today I'm lovely because it is a gorgeous, gorgeous summer day. I'm going to, after we record, go out and stand in the sun and just soak in that vitamin D. Because much like Danny Crichton, who's also here, I'm super pasty right now and I could use some sun. Danny, how are you doing? I am not pasty. I have gotten sun. In fact, I've been sunburned
2: three times (laughs) because after being holed up in a house for the last year, you walk outside and you're like, oh, the sun, this is this feels great. And then you come home and you look like a salmon. Right.
0: And then the next day you look again like a bowl of fresh cream. Anyways, we are gonna talk about a lot of things today. This is a show in which there is something for everybody, so stick with us. We are going to start with a discussion of Amazon buying MGM why it's doing that and does jeff bezos really think he's james bond next up we have lordstown motors all things spac electric vehicles and kind of like is this stuff legit or is it kind of problematic then collab capital put together a fascinating new venture capital fund that natasha will walk us through and then we have funding rounds from resolve and then a group we watch interactio fireflies.ai and we're going to wrap up with nom nom, nom noom it's going to be a blast you kick things off we're going to pivot to <laughs> I don't know how to describe this. Uh, an e commerce cloud company buying an ancient video production thing, Danny? i Walk me through it.
2: Right. So, Amazon announced this week that it was buying MGM Studios for $8.45 billion. Um, fairly large. It's the second largest acquisition Amazon has made after Whole Foods a couple of years back, which I believe was what, somewhere in 17, 19 billion range. Yep. So, not actually as big as its largest acquisition, but it's going to get 4,000 films, 17,000 TV shows basically dump all this content into the pipe that is Amazon Prime Video. You know, there's a huge amount of media consolidation in the last week. We have so much news on this front, as you know, from the podcast. We've had AT&T spinning off Warner Media and combining it with Discovery. Verizon, our parent company, is spinning ourselves (laughs) off. You know, we're like MGM and Warner and then TechCrunch. (laughs) Um, We're in that league. That's exactly the league that we're (laughs) talking about. Um, But really, you know, there's this huge debate of pipes and distribution versus the library of content. And I I think what you're just seeing is a complete reformat of the entire industry in the last year.
1: What's interesting to me is Amazon has, similar to Netflix, has pushed a lot of its own original content in the past few years, and it's had some big hits. And so we're not seeing it give up and only look at buying instead of building in this way. MGM was on the brink of bankruptcy, if I recall correctly.
0: Yeah, back in 2010. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so to me, I was like, You know, you're just expanding. It felt actually, compared to what most people were saying, it felt like it made a lot of sense to me based on how much Amazon has been investing in its media arm. But Alex, you had funny tweets about it and actual thoughts. So share those (laughs) thoughts. Is there a difference between the two categories? So, So
0: I've spent more time than I want to admit trying to figure out what Amazon Prime is. Because to me, it's really just an excuse to get things delivered to my house very quickly. And by that, I mean like books and tank tops, right? That's kind of what I buy on the internet. And Amazon has been working very hard to expand the purview of Prime over the years in directions that occasionally have, have made less sense to me. So Natasha, to your point, inside the conceit of Amazon having a unique content strategy, totally agree that the MGM deal fits in. My question is, going back kind of one step, why does Amazon Prime have a, <laughs> a, you know, a unique media strategy when really Amazon is an e-commerce company and it is a technology platform? It also wants to be a media conglomerate. Why? Media is not the world's best business, you know? It's it's strange to me to spend this much capital, focus, and attention on buying movies loved by boomers (laughs) to feed them into your free shipping service.
1: Danny, you had a good point about how this kind of reminded you of the golden age of Hollywood.
2: Well, I mean, look, I, I, you know, obviously in streaming, there's now vertical integration, right? So we have the the distributors and the content libraries are lining up again. And, and, and if you remember back in the 30s and 40s, you know, 100 years ago, that's what theaters were. There was the Paramount Theater, and you could only watch Paramount movies at the Paramount Theater. And there was a, a very famous antitrust case that basically broke those kind of micro monopolies, these vertically integrated monopolies in the studios and the studio system that completely change Hollywood to what we see it today. We're going back that direction. What's interesting to me, though, is Amazon is the only streaming service that actually has another business, right? You know, Netflix has to have a library. It has to own the pipes. It has to own the customer relationship. You know, same with Discovery. You go down the list, Peacock, Hulu, everyone's focused on, hey, we have a business we're media, et cetera. Prime is this unique asset where it's like, well, Prime Video is like an afterthought. You know, Prime Music is an afterthought. Everything's an afterthought. The way I think of Prime is like, you get free shipping on Amazon plus a B minus service and like 20 other things that you vaguely need. But like, Spotify (laughs) is 5x better than Prime Music. Like, Netflix and Hulu are five times better than Prime Video. Trust me, I'm on all the above. Same. You know, and it's like, but but because you already have the one, it's like, well, should I just use Prime Music
0: and avoid the Spotify $15 a month charge? Okay, so we've promised our producers that we were not going to stay on this for too long, so we're <laughs> going to have to scoot along. But a couple of little points. One, I'm not going to churn from – if they took away all the free video on Prime, I would not churn. If they doubled the price of Prime and removed all the free video, I would not churn <laughs> on Prime because I buy crap on the internet. Please get it to my door. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. I'm a little bit annoyed that we are seeing Amazon spend this much money on a non-core asset when it says that it can't afford to pay its drivers enough money. You know, like that, That as a human, that sucks. And Danny has one last thought for us on this.
2: I just think the opportunity here, the actual fusion is the product placement opportunity. Oh. So, you know, Amazon now owns the James Bond franchise. So instead of, you know... I like it shaken, not stirred, but only with a Whole Foods organic olive. And only only on Amazon Prime, because I only deliver my gadgets next day. There's so many opportunities.
1: I remember when Amazon bought Whole Foods, I went to Whole Foods. I was reporting for the Globe then, and they sent me there. And there was avocados and Echoes next to each other. And I was like, is this it? Is this what we we're waiting avocados for and opinion. echoes
2: that's the millennial dream
1: but <laughs> yeah,
0: and the the sound in the background is our producers frantically typing that down as a headline idea <laughs> but we need, we need to move on lest i get on my soapbox and, and bang on about corporate greed we're gonna move to a story about corporate greed uh, and talk about lordstown motors okay so everyone hates spax whatever did you guys pay attention last year to when a number of electric vehicle companies were going public via spax Didn't we have an episode of equity on the subject? I was
1: just going to (laughs) say, if our listeners are good listeners, they will be like so happy to listen to last week's automotive episode with Kirsten because we talked a lot about those SPACs, Alex, and a lot of how they happened to end up as fraud. Right.
2: It was like EV and then we had the LiDAR wave of like 25 LiDAR companies that all
0: SPACed. Yeah. So I, I bring all that up, not just to point out that we had a show about it, but to kind of like talk about how many companies went out in the EV space that were kind of suspect since that recording we got some earnings from lordstown motors and it's amazing to watch the hype of a SPAC deck the thing that you know a company puts out to hype up their SPAC combination and then reality when it arrives so a, a couple of things that that happened like lordstown said they were going to produce and sell two thousand two hundred vehicles this year now a modest number it's their first year of real production in theory and so you know cool all right turns out that's going to be more like a thousand and they said that they weren't going to need to raise more capital now six seven months after their SPAC combination they're going to need to raise more capital and on and on and on and so it seems that so much of what was promised in the initial SPAC pitch it's not true and i do not want to be sued by someone because i don't actually know who owns me at the moment and i don't think verizon is going to shell out extra money for lawyers i'm on my way out the door to the trash bin called private equity so i'm not going to get sued today but I'm amazed at how you can say things that are so instantly untrue during a discussion of securities.
2: Well, and this is why the SEC has been clamping down on SPACs over the last couple months. That's why there's a complete frankly, collapse of new SPACs being launched precisely because the rules are getting stricter. You know, a year ago, you could actually just put in the prospectus basically anything you wanted. Yeah, uh, You know, it's a projection, right? And there's a caveat. There's a disclosure at the bottom that's like, you know, future performance may not actually meet these projections. Like, it's totally fake. Now, I, the SEC's rule is much stricter, which is you, you kind of have to base it off of some semblance of reality. You can't kind of just make stuff up. And I think it's like precisely for companies like this, where there is no world in which these vehicles were going to get delivered. They weren't going to need more money. They weren't going to need to pull in more from investors. So, you know, this is exactly what the SEC was trying to go after.
0: Yeah. I feel like men are more honest about their heights and dating profiles than <laughs> companies going public via a SPAC are in their projections. And I literally have seen the data about how men lie about their height. Like that's from the, the really remember that really good, okay, Cupid blog when they did all the data on like, dating world back in the day that was great anyways one more example of this this lordstown i'm going to call it a fiasco that's my opinion please don't sue me is the company said it was going to spend about 45 million in capital expenses this year now that is investment in plants and production and kind of tooling up factories and 45 million dollars is you know a reasonable amount of money their q1 capex alone was 53 million so i mean the, the the scale and difference between what was pitched and what is the rubber meeting the road, ironically, for a truck company, or at least what is maybe going to eventually be a truck company, it, it is shocking to me. And, you know, this is a bummer because it, it's bad for other companies that might want to pursue a SPAC that are not so much like this.
1: Yeah, I guess I was wondering what your thoughts were on how relevant it going public via SPAC versus a traditional IPO was in this story. Like, And then we hear that phrase like, it doesn't matter once you're on the public markets how you did it. But in this case, do you think that matters?
0: So I'm not to repeat myself from the episode with Kirsten, but like, you know, the thing about Nicola, despite all of the shenanigans that have happened about that, the company is a public firm that is incredibly well capitalized thanks to its SPAC debut. And so if you can kind of get it done and raise a lot of money and not get sued too hard, you can kind of make things work. But in the case of Down, they're going to need more capital, and so the equation doesn't quite pencil out. The bummer, though, is like Thursday morning, I was digging through the, the, the Acorns SPAC deck. Acorns is a consumer fintech company, and uh, it's pretty good. Big SaaS incomes, pretty solid growth. I understand it's kind of like ramped profitability, and the money from its SPAC is going to fund it, I think, all the way to, and been past cash flow break even. And it, its SPAC deck was not crappy. It was not obviously overinflated. It seemed somewhat reasonable to me. A little enthusiastic as all SPAC decks are, but I'm willing <laughs> to read through that. You know, I'm a big boy, but I mean, stuff like this Lordstown deal really, I think makes the overall method of going public more and more suspect. And, you know, as SPACs have their timers ticked down, as we've said on the show before, they're going to get more and more desperate. And so uh, there's a weird negative alignment of incentives uh, as time passes. Danny, just to, to round us off on this before I, I go on for too long, what is the percent chance that next year At this time, we're still seeing a number of unicorns go public via SPACs.
2: Oh, I I think it'll accelerate quite a lot over the next year, right? Because all the SPACs expire, right? Most SPACs have a two-year search period in which they can look for a deal to consummate. You know, if you think about the wave of SPACs we saw debuted last year, you know, add 24 months to the calendar, boom, that's where we are. But in much of the same way that all the lawyers and accounts and SEC officials collaborated on creating the SPAC vehicle over the last couple of years... On the good news front, Collab Capital has a big news that, Natasha, you covered this week. What's going on over there?
1: Yeah, they are an Atlanta-based venture capital firm launched last year, actually, with $2 million. They were launched by Jewel Burks, Justin Dawkins, and Barry Givens. They launched with that $50 million target, and this week they announced that they have closed that target. The fund, notably, is all about supporting and backing black founders. And if I have my data correctly, it is one of the largest funds ever closed from an entirely black-led firm, solely committed to black founders. So huge news in that front and showed a really interesting increase from 2 million to 50 million in genuinely one year.
0: Yeah, I was really impressed with the amount of capital they raised over the time period. So shout out to Jewel Burks, Justin Dawkins, and Barry Givens. Look, here's my thought about investing in women and underrepresented minorities in the broader tech industry. It's like an arbitrage opportunity. So sure. It's, it's morally good. I think we all agree to have, you know, venture capital be spread out more equitably, but like think about all the people that are being overlooked for stupid reasons who are amazing. So, you know, if I was going to be an LP in something, I would try to be an LP in this because it's going to have a broader lens and have less bias and therefore probably pick more intelligently and have higher returns. You know, like, so to me, I'm, I, I just, I don't know, add a zero This is the next step, I feel.
1: Yeah, Jewel brought this up pretty early on in our conversation. She mentioned how she thinks her fund is still small compared to how much opportunity there is for Black founders, which is more than just kind of a line. I think that's so true. And another data point, Alex, in response to what you just said is when they were first pitching Collab Capital to LPs, most LPs got underrepresented, but they didn't get just Black founders. But the Collab Capital team said, no, we want to just do Black founders. They were basically saying how even in underrepresented focused firms, black founders still continue to be a minority among total investments. So this is kind of like that double minority focus and from backers such as Apple, PayPal, Goldman Sachs, MailChimp. And Google was. You sound was, so.
2: Uh, Mailchimp's yeah. a, a massive Atlanta company.
0: I'm not surprised why, why, for an Atlanta-based firm. Oh, sorry, my friend the entered Mailchimp? for Mailchimp. The people who live one block away. <laughs> Mailchimp's still a thing. People read email. Sorry.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, good stuff there. And I'll give one last data point before we move on. They are planning to invest in 50 companies over a three to five year period with checks between 500K to 750K and obviously reserves too. So a lot more news from them, hopefully in our inboxes and on the site.
0: Before I bring us over to the Resolve story and the funding rounds, I just want to point out this little bit of stuff we have in our notes. Harlem Capital, Clio Capital, Mac VC. it's encouraging. Venture Capital is still super white and super male and super straight, but it is slowly diversifying. And speaking about people, uh, oh, I don't have a good segue for this, Danny. Uh, is spinning out, uh, resolve. Let's talk about it. <laughs>
2: that blew. What a, what a loser transition going on there. Okay,
1: Danny, you go. Three, no, two, one. No, no, Not only no, no,
2: are I... we affirming that diversity is an important thing, we are resolving wow. to oh. move forward. That was so much better. You
0: got to admit. So, so that was a solid B minus. I got an F.
1: <laughs> okay, guys, I am resolute in my resolve to talk about resolve. A new Affirm spin out that raised $60 million this week for, you guessed it, Buy Now, Pay Later. So, Danny, tell us why it's not Affirm and why it's different than the company it spun out of.
2: Obviously, a huge round here and a, and a rare spin out. I mean, Affirm is an IPO company now, so it's certainly not a young company, but it, it's interesting to see some of these already spinning out parts of its products. The big difference here is Affirm is a Buy Now, Pay Later, a BNPL product for consumers. So, most famously, Affirm's largest customer is Peloton. If you go to the Peloton website, you click the button, a firm will give you almost an immediate loan to buy that product today and and have monthly payments for the next year or two or three or whatever the case may be. Resolve is the exact same thing, but for B2B, so for businesses buying business products. So If you're looking to buy your Xerox copier for $10,000 or some ungodly price that copiers cost these days, many companies have cash flow. They can absolutely afford it on a monthly basis, but probably can't afford the cost up front. And that's what Resolve is going into. It's actually a big market. You know, there's a bunch yeah. of startups in this category. Resolve is absolutely not the first ones to go here. But you know, given the connection to a firm, the kinds of folks that they've been able to build around, I think it's kind of an interesting model. One key difference between a firm and a resolve, a firm tends to be on the the yearly to two-year zone for consumers. In B2B, it's 30 to 90 days. So it's it's not like the same level of you know monthly payment that you would otherwise get
0: okay so the thing that i want to talk about here is like the idea that this has a quote a smart credit engine you know we're thinking about how like these products allow for as Danny said in the peloton example really rapid access to credit the question really becomes like you know how how different is that credit system than just running credit checks on people because there's been a lot of commentary that we've been kind of reading through and trying to figure out about how you know bnpl services on the consumer side are not that different in terms of how they they kind of assess credit risk than other methods of, of accessing kind of like higher risk consumer credit and so you know maybe in the business sense this makes more sense as like a 30-day charge card effectively like whatever but you know i think consumers end up paying a lot more than they kind of anticipate for this type of credit and you know is it really accessible and I, i'm not sure that we actually come up with a new method of credit versus just a new checkout system attached to a a a debt product that is very similar to other things that have kind of existed before i i I don't know how much i love it i guess
1: Uh, yeah i guess it's like we all know how peloton has fueled a lot of a firm's business but take away the peloton shining light i am really curious what people are really spending their money on within a firm or even these small businesses how many of these are small businesses or how many of them are you know even venture-backed businesses we don't know and so I think that will do a lot of the hard work, but obviously it's not best for the business. And so it's this really clear tension that a firm has incentives to sell more Pelotons, but consumers who need a firm more probably aren't buying Pelotons.
0: The people for whom they want to buy a Peloton probably can afford to buy it in cash. You know, like, so how, how critical is this? It really, I mean, we got our Peloton and we didn't use a firm. And one of my friends was like, well, why wouldn't you want to hold on to the cash? And I was like, I just didn't care. You know, so like it wasn't super pertinent. But yeah. I mean, if you're affirming a $50 purchase of something smaller, it's a different kind of profile, I suppose. I think there's a couple of things
2: going on. One is, particularly in the EU with Klarna, there's been a lot of issues around interest rates because a lot of the interest rates aren't very clear and transparent. You know, I did buy now, pay later with my iPhone for instance and and the reason I did that is because it's 0% interest. I mean it's actually free money. And if you believe in inflation, it's actually free free money. You're yeah, they're making money. you yeah. You're, they're paying you to have an iPhone on their 80% margin ridiculous product. So you know, in some cases if I knew that, like I would do it. Obviously when it's 13% interest rate, you know, the the way these companies generally quote is they quote a monthly price. And people will go, "Oh, $45 a month. I'll totally pay that," not realizing that built into that price is a 15% interest rate. So that's a huge challenge on the credit front. What I actually think is interesting is resolve. Getting into B two B, you know, one of the most interesting areas with companies like Nav and others is trying to give businesses credit scores, right? Yeah, we've had a huge amount of companies. Nav being, I think, one of the most prominent, they've raised a bunch of money. A lot of companies trying to do this for SaaS companies, how to underwrite revenues, how to know yeah. they're going to have a certain amount of cash flow. But that's one of the reasons they stay at thirty to ninety days today is you can't actually underwrite, you know, two three years into the future for a lot of companies, and that to me is what to pay attention to in the coming you know, months, years, as we have better credit scores and better prediction capabilities around companies' cash flow is, well, actually you could actually loan for two years instead of three months because we actually know what's going to happen in the future.
0: What we're seeing here is a weird convergence of the corporate spend startups and the BNPL world because you can get up to a 30-day revolving credit line with some of these companies like Brex and for some of their newer firms that they're bringing on board, their customers that they know less about, it's like a one-day payback period. So from one day to ninety days is kind of the current business credit window across different mechanisms, but it's all just underwriting. It's all just debt. I think you're absolutely it's the
2: opposite of Amazon Prime. If Amazon Prime was about (laughs) reducing your shipping times, all these companies are about making things take longer and longer to pay back. But that is enough on FinTech because we're getting fatigued and we're gonna zoom in on the Zoom fatigue world with rewatch. Natasha, you wrote about the company. What's going on there?
1: Rewatch ended up raising a $20 million Series A led by Andreessen Horowitz. They had raised a $2 million seed round in January of this year, actually. So a pretty fast follow-on round. And the way to think of Rewatch is it's a searchable video library of all of your company's videos that they have on a day-to-day basis. All of their meetings, all of our all-hands tagged. You can watch them asynchronously is the big bet with rewatch. And it's, as Danny kind of said, it's an answer to zoom fatigue. It's letting people take those days of full calendar invites of meetings and make them work for their schedule. What do you guys think about it?
0: I dig it. I mean, look, like there's very few people who should be in meetings all day, right? Like a a company is of a certain scale. You need to have people inside of whom their job is to take information from one group to the next and kind of like go around and, and talk and spread information. PMs do a lot of this. Fine. For the rest of us, leave me alone. I'm busy,
2: you know? And like,
0: I, I don't want a meeting because meeting is when I'm not working. Meeting is when I'm pretending to listen to you while I try to also do email, you know? And so this sort of thing really clicks with me. I just want to double click on the fact that it raised $2 million in January and $20 million in May. Like, I mean, that is so 2021, like the cadence of it. So I, I'm presuming, Danny, there's some really hot growth driving that rapid repricing and, and proximate fundraising round. One would be hopeful of that.
2: Look, I I think it's super interesting. I think you'll see more of this in like the sales world. So we saw this with Dooley and some others who are going into like sales call monitoring. So you actually have the transcripts of the last call, indexing that stuff. I think that there's a deeper cultural question of like, what are organizations going to look like when your boss says, hey, we want to hit like 30% growth. And then six months later, they're like, remember when we said we wanted to hit 50% growth? You're like 50, you said 30. And they're like, no, I said 50. And it's like, let me rewind the tape you know, police cop style, and you're like, and then it's like, oh, wow, you were wrong. You're absolutely flagrantly wrong. I have it on video documentary evidence.
0: That's literally a Black Mirror episode.
2: There's a real change here, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of soft conversations, I'd say, in the workplace. And I think we're going to get closer and closer to this world of like, you're going to be very precise. You know, my last little bit here is I I think when you look at Notion and some others, I actually think we're going to move back towards text right? Because you go to a lot of meetings, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of follow ups, a lot of points. And it's like, well, if we're just going to end up with text anyway, if that's how most people are going to like imbibe a meeting in the long run is reading these textual archives of these videos that are indexed and transcripted. Why not just write an email in the first place and save everyone a whole hell of a lot of time?
1: Totally. I mean, I wrote this in the seed round coverage rewatch, which is I don't know if it's good or bad, but is betting on a single consumer habit really changing dramatically over the next you know, 10 years. And so that is a ambitious bet and I'm here for it. Rewatch is going from invite only to general public accessibility with this Series A. So we'll actually be able to see how it grows if it does. But let's move on to another remote interpretation platform, question mark, Interactio grabbed 30 million.
2: Yeah, so Interactio is a platform designed to connect interpreters, actual certified real interpreters who are, you know, experienced in interpreting between two foreign languages into different meetings, into different contexts, etc. So this is not real time. This is not AI. This is not transcription. It's actual human interpretation. It's a Lithuania-based company that has been working with all kinds of folks, the United Nations, the European Commission, JP Morgan, BMW, a lot of global companies that have different workforces. And they just raised a $30 million Series A round led by Ooh. Eight Roads Ventures and Storm Ventures. And to me, this is like a, a brilliant example of like, why didn't this happen 10 years ago? There's nothing technologically that prevented this from like going on. But, like, you know, well integrated actually connects into the tools. According to our notes here, 2020, they hosted 18,000 meetings and had 390,000 listeners across 70 wow. countries. So they're like their own mini UN going on right over there.
0: This reminds me of Kudo, K U D O, a company that I've covered a couple of times. Kudo does like international meetings, but with human interpreters. So they source like their own video tech and then their own pool of interpreters to kind of like help facilitate conversations with everybody, going back to the UN example. I mean, I, I think that the change to more distributed teams in general for companies of all sizes, not just megacorps, has really unlocked a huge demand for better ways to communicate, I guess, synchronously, mostly in, in this particular case, but also asynchronously as well. And so this sort of stuff is going to be a requirement, I feel. Certainly, uh, there's a lot of accessibility for you know different parts of the workforce to watch the same video,
2: particularly in these multinational global companies. But I will say this, this is a great example of a startup that I think addresses the problem with the right understanding of the limits of AI versus humans, right? Interpretation is one of these things that, like, sure, Google Duo and some of these other products that have come out over the years get pretty close. But when you're in a business environment, when you're at the UN, you're at the European Commission, like a single word in some cases can be the difference between countries fighting, agreeing on something, getting close to it. It actually matters an enormous amount. And these interpreters are extremely experienced. So to me, it's like when the communication is most vital, that's why you sign up for a human-based platform. And to me, super successful, 30 million in the bank.
0: Yeah. Pivoting to a, a non-human-based platform, Fireflies.ai. So what it does is it's a service that records your meetings. So if you're on Zoom or whatever it is, and then provides a, a pretty intelligent transcript, if you've used otter.ai, you kind of know what I'm talking about. But what Fireflies wants to do is then intelligently plug in information from your meeting transcript into things like your CRM. And to me, building a software layer on top of a transcription product, presuming that the transcription software itself is pretty good, fascinating and pretty cool, and probably something that's going to fit into the no code world eventually. But it just put together a $14 million round, more than 10,000 teams currently use it. Its revenues grew like 300% in the last six months. So it's kind of blowing up and uh, it's kind of one to to look at. Oh, and one last thing. It's not just a SaaS company. It also has some usage-based pricing, which means that it's on the hip side of startup (laughs) business models. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's having its cake and it's eating it too. There you go. That's so impressive. When I read this round, Alex, I was thinking a lot about like this general thesis we've all been talking about since the beginning of the pandemic, which is like, how are we going to modernize Meetings, And we all know that they are currently broken in some way. And Danny, I'm still thinking about what you just said about how if it's going to end up in text anyways, let's just go straight to the text. And so I feel like the companies that end up doing this and adopt it early adopted are really going to be having happier distributed teams. I don't know how much differentiation there even needs to be at this point. I just feel like everyone needs to try some better shit than current Zoom gives you.
0: And finally today, we are going to talk about Noom. Now, Noom is a, a weight loss psychology mobile app thing, and some of my friends use it. But I'm, I'm perplexed, Natasha, why it raised $540 million in a Series F. That's a lot of money. So, Can you break it down kind of what it does for folks who don't know and then explain to me why that dollar amount makes sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, so... Candidly, I don't know why it makes sense, but I have some research on what it potentially points towards. That sure,
0: that's the ambitious
2: line <laughs> from Equity. This is the reporting that goes into our weekly I'll, show. I'll, I'll
1: be, I'll be humble no, and honest. No, this is the honesty, Dan. Yeah, exactly. I'll be honest. I'm not going to thought leadership if it's I don't know what I'm leading o, about. It's because it
2: was not one o. If it was nom. That's the eating. That's the weight gain app. That's nom nom nom. Oh, and then no. when you have too many O's, like the spaghetti O's, you go and add the Noom.
1: We're melting. Guys, we're, we're melting before my it, eyes. It's
0: Thursday afternoon. <laughs> this is this is where we are. Noom.
1: Here's my take on Noom. Noom generated $400 million in revenue in 2020, which was almost twice the revenue it made the year before at $237 million. They are all about psychology-based weight loss. And one of its many products is the 16-week curriculum that offers education, motivation, Pairs you up with a coach, helps you calorie count and daily log, as well as add a lot of reminders and notifications to really encourage engagement and commitment in losing weight. They obviously are more than just that. They've done a lot of scientific research to back it up, and I can list out some of those examples too. But I'll be honest, I think a real question with Noom, even among the very well-educated health tech community, is a question mark on what makes it different than Weight Watchers than all of the other weight loss programs out there.
2: I think this is a company to really, really watch. I don't know why it hasn't gotten more traction. You know, it's actually like a, a what, a 10, 11 year old company. It's gone through a lot of iterations. It, it grew very slowly for years. And then the last three to four years, it just totally hit its stride going from like zero to tens and tens and tens of millions of revenue, tens of millions of users. You know, it raised 540 million. Last time it raised, whatever, 250, uh, two years ago, it was 58 million from Sequoia. Like, this is a company that just really hit its all. And weirdly enough, I interviewed the CEO two years ago just on background to, to learn more about it. But he and I were actually born in the same hospital in the middle of Ohio on the same day within an hour of each other.
1: What are the chances destined for greatness?
2: We were like the two babies born in the same place at the same time. Who would have thought
0: that? Danny, are you, are you the secret CEO of Noom? Is <laughs> that how we got on the show today?
1: <laughs> the birth <laughs> certificate got messed up. was like, say, no, we should okay, watch okay, Noom. So, so
0: I, I don't know if this is just a thing or they did
2: it for me. But when I visited Noom headquarters, I've never seen a greater spread of food on a table for a meeting in my entire life. Wow. I think there were at least 60 dessert and food options available what? for the meeting itself. There were cakes and cookies and and candies and licorice and, and at least 20 different types of tea and coffee and drinks. And I they were like, you know, pick what you want to eat. And I was like, First of all, this is weight loss.
0: So what is all this doing here? (laughs) That's like having a wet bar at like the sobriety startup. Like, what the (laughs) f***?
1: Alex, I've lost a lot of weight. You've lost a lot of weight in your life, Danny. I don't know if you've had similar health journeys than me and Alex, but I do think like psychology based solutions were the only way to do it. And so I guess I'm thinking like when I was losing weight like five years ago, the only option I had was my fitness pal. And that is still a question mark on if it was a healthy way to do it, because it just only thing it offered you was eat these many calories per day and you will lose weight, which is how you lose weight. But there was no like full solution for me. And I wish there was. And so Noom, what it stands for and what it says about the weight loss industry right now is a great thing, I think
0: yeah i think more human-centric ways to approach weight loss is good because everyone knows how to lose weight it's called the wrestler's diet you eat less right. and you run more and if you do lots of that you will lose weight but it's very hard to motivate to do that and so like sure everyone kind of knows what you have to do but to get there is pretty tough so focusing on where people are at focusing on coaching support I, to me this all makes really good sense and should ultimately yield more healthy folks and you know given that we're hearing that noom is talking to advisors to go public at maybe a 10, Dollar valuation. It's also rather a lucrative business. Anyways, that's our show. We are back Monday morning with more equity hugs from us, your 2021 Webby Award winning <laughs> equity hosting staff. Goodbye. Never forget it. <laughs>